This is an ABC podcast. A warning before we begin today's episode. It contains content about suicide. If you're not up for listening today, please join us again next week. As the years progressed, even our daughters did notice that Glenn didn't smile a lot and... Uh, the youngest one, Ellie, at the time, and she would have been almost six, Ellie said, Daddy, you don't smile, and she stuck her fingers in the corner of his mouth and pushed them up to make a smiley face, and and he said, no, that's Mummy's job. Tia, who was eight, she said, Dad, you used to smile a lot more. I used to see you smile, and, and that was a moment where I took Glenn aside after the kids had gone to bed and said, look, I know you're busy, I know there's a lot on, but it would just be nice if you could just, around the kids, just a few more smiles. And I remember sort of being chastised about that. It's not what I do and I'm so busy. And um, I did not know that there was a mental illness um, at play and I, I did not know that Glenn was struggling. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. Felicity Urquhart is a beloved country music singer and songwriter. And for a long time, she was also a broadcaster, hosting the ABC's Saturday Night Country. Back at the beginning of 2019, Felicity was looking ahead to a year full of performing and publicity because she was about to release her first solo album in over a decade. A decade that included marriage and motherhood to two daughters. And that album, it would come to mark a turning point in both her career and her life. The album Felicity was so excited to release that year was called Frozen Rabbit. There was also a track on the album by the same name. And making the record, it had been a labour of love for Felicity, but also for her husband, Glenn. He was a musician and producer. Recording that album with my husband, Glenn Hanna, it was a really exciting time. And Glenn always said from the outset, we want this album to be really special and I want people to sit up and take notice. This is the the new Felicity. They need to take you seriously and respect you as a writer and an artist. And I felt... I felt really, well, chuffed first and foremost that my husband, you know, wanted that for me as well. And he wanted it for for him too, to have that stamp for his wife, I think. It was certainly a project of love together. Felicity and Glenn first met back in the late 90s as two young musicians coming up through the country music scene at the same time. Oh, it's really lovely. Uh, I remember meeting him on the phone first. I mean, that's a form of meeting, right? Of course, yeah. I think so. We said g'day and it was kind of um, this uh, exchange. He was inquiring about what um, songs and, and what approach I wanted for a show that we were going to be playing together. He was in the band and I remember getting off the phone going, oh my goodness, that voice was beautiful. I was struck by his gentle voice and the way that he spoke, his language. And then, I don't know, within months we ended up touring together in a show called The Young Stars of Country. He was in the band and Glenn was part of that for the whole tour and that's where we fell in love. And what role did he play in the constellation of people on that tour? Mm, he was the, yeah, the, the gunslinger. He was the, the guitarist, had all the 
the solo action and um, harmonies. He also sang harmonies for everybody. And, and in those days, too, I mean, we were young, we were in our 20s and... Uh, I remember Glenn was the guy saying, come on, we've got a day off. Let's go do something. Let's explore. Let's go for a swim in the waterfall or let's go play golf. Let's do something. Get out of the hotel, you buggers, and, and let's go go fly. I had dreams of having a family and having a career. I wanted to be, you know, Dolly Parton. And, you know, it was I was going to have the whole thing because surely you can I mean I love that about the genre that I've grown up in that it's encouraged and celebrated so I, I guess on that tour I thought this this guy is just everything he's fun he's talented and he comes from the country and he was um, wanting to have family one day too and grew up listening to Slim Dusty and yeah I thought he was he was pretty sweet <laughs> A lot of folks referred to him as a studio god, you know, get Glenn on the session. And uh, he was an unassuming guitar hero, uh, very quiet, reserved, and he wanted his the music to speak for him. That was his personality through the music. Was he a perfectionist, Felicity? Oh, absolutely. And everyone who worked with Glenn uh, either knew that from the get-go or, or came to realise that within probably 20 minutes of a, a rehearsal session, you know, it'd be 10 o'clock at night and he, he would say, well, the day's not done yet. You know, the sun doesn't come up till five in the morning. So you've got all that time. That's the way he would work on things. If he had to solve a problem, he would use every hour of every day. And so he thought it was quite fine to tell me that I could do the same, but um, that is not how I operate. But he used to make me pull my socks up a time or two. And sometimes I think I felt short. <laughs> there were moments where I wished he would have stopped because uh, when I would check in and go, you're right, you, know, you look, you know, consumed by things. And he would, his response was, I've got so many fires I'm putting out, I'm just keeping the fires out. And I'd go, okay, well, I've got the kids, you know, I'm good here and dinner will be at whatever time. And I'd try to keep us out of the way because I could see that he was overwhelmed with the workload and everyone needed him. He was designing a magazine, he was delivering art, album artwork and it was all on. Plus, he was a father and husband. So I think he had no space in his mind, I believe. Glenn didn't do anything by halves. And making Frozen Rabbit with Felicity had been no different. They'd slaved over it, recording for hours on end in the music studio in the backyard, with its soft light and its floors covered in Persian rugs. The result was a creative triumph for both of them. Glenn took the photos, did the graphic design to uh, every sound you heard on the album, every musician uh, that we chose together to play on it. And then the beautiful melodies and uh, that um, he just made sound so beautiful for me. It was such a, a, a proud moment for both of us to have that finished product. And and he was quietly chuffed. He, I remember he had listened to the album in the car and said, yep, it's a good album. It should do well for you. And that was Glenn being proud. <laughs> that was Glenn's version of a, a tap dance and a happy dance, where, the, you know, me, on the other hand, be doing cartwheels. And I was. I was jigging around the lounge room with the, the, the girls. And um, I always operated that way, though. I was always the bubbly, 
um, smiley one of the team. And was that a, was that a huge pressure to be? No, <laughs> but so it's not something that I ever. Uh, did for so I do remember a time when um, Glenn's mum said to me Felicity is that smile forced how do you smile and talk and I I remember being pulled up by it thinking are you serious (laughs) I said okay that's um, that's me like I, I have trouble not smiling I've been at photo shoots where photographers would ask me to just just tone the smile down a little bit bit less teeth and it's just very hard for me to do that. I had the opportunity to interview an author who uh, wrote this book about depression and uh, people in the creative world and I remember saying in the studio, oh, I'd love to have a chat to this author. I think it would be really good on the show because there's a lot of musos and writers that struggle and have gone through dark times. And his response was, no one wants to hear that shit. No one wants to talk about that. And he said, it's a music show, play music. And I remember him being quite, oh, gruff. So... um, should I have dealt with that differently? Should I have looked at him? Should I have held the mirror up more closely? Um, but I, I took that, that, OK, maybe he's on to something, maybe I should talk to another artist about their latest release, and so I didn't have that chat. Um, I think people um, put this wall up and think no-one will care or they think I'm, I've got my stuff together. They think I'm the best at, you know, being, in Glenn's case, the best guitar player, the best, you know, designer. I've got all this together. People think I am the guy, but inside, obviously, he had a whole other conversation going on. Um, He didn't let anyone in on that conversation. We had a doctor's appointment, Glenn did, and he invited me in. On our way to the doctor's, he was sitting on his hands. I said, you just tell him how you're feeling, just be honest. And, you know, to me, I, I thought Glenn's had a breakdown. Uh, he's burnt out. He needs just okay, pull the plug on all the work. He just needs to stop and let it be. On that drive, short drive to the doctor's, he said that I was an angel and he didn't deserve me and that he loved my dad. He thought he was the best bloke he'd ever met. And your mum looks after the girls so well. It was like this checklist. And I said, come on, babe, and you're amazing and we're going to get through this. We'll see the doctor and you'll feel better after that. So I went in with him and um, the doctor said, look, it sounds to me like you're working too hard. If we didn't have computer screens and all this, life would be a whole lot easier. I think there'd be a lot less stress. And he prescribed a low-dose uh, oh, antidepressant. And I thought, well, that sounds like good. He said, well, just go on this for a little while and see how you feel if we need to change that. And we got the script at the chemist supermarket. And I remember he got a milk coffee. That's it. And at the supermarket, as soon as we walked out, he cracked that and had the pill. Lately, Glenn had been taking long bike rides through the valleys and bushland around their home on the New South Wales central coast. It was a way to stay fit, help clear the mind. And when he and Felicity returned from the doctor that day, around mid-morning, Glenn set off for a ride. 
So we'd been home, I don't know, 10 minutes. And he'd said, right, oh, I'm off. And I said, OK, have you, wait up. Before you go, have you got enough water? Have you got something to eat? He said, yeah, I've got so much water. It's ridiculous. I remember sort of hesitating, feeling awkward myself, thinking, OK, go, you've got to do this bike ride. That'll be good. And then just before he left, I, I said, now, where are you going? Just in case anything happens, I need to know where you'll be. And he told me the route that he would take. And I said, OK, well, you go and go and have a good ride and everything will be OK. And he was, you know, helmet on and out, out he rode. I remember feeling, OK, right, he's gone. OK, I'm going to do some washing. I'm going to clean this place. I remember sort of shaking my hands and feeling like, OK, this, this is not, this is hard. This is difficult. It's going to get better. I remember just thinking... Right, action stations, Felicity. Do stuff, have it nice and ready. Do make something, make some food, so when he gets back, everything's right. Um, so, yeah, that's what I did. Straight into the um, laundry, doing all those things. Um, the days moved on. I've hung the washing out, brought that back in. I see the clouds start to come in. I thought, oh, I hope he's all right. It looks like it might rain. And then the kids arrived home on the bus and then I thought, gee, it's weird he's not home. I rang and I left a message saying, look, the girls are home, just wondering how long you might be. And and then, OK, that kept progressing. It's getting dark now. I rang his dad and I said, have you heard from him? This is not cool. I'm worried and I'm not enjoying this. And then... I said, girls, we've got to get in the car. This is dark now. We've got to go look for Dad. He might have had a punctured tyre or something. And, yeah, and off we headed, looking for Daddy. And then I remember Ellie saying, Mum, if you let Dad go next time, you've got to put a tracker on his bike so you know where he'll be. And I said, oh, that's a great idea, Ellie, and kept calling and... Then I rang my brother-in-law asking what should I do. This is just not right you know what what do you think and he said well hopefully he's just sort of found himself at a at a bar somewhere and he might be just keeping warm and fliss when you get home you better maybe call the police and just notify them of the situation and they'll let you know what to do and that's what I did and next thing you know the police are at the door they're asking me for a photo they're saying it's probably just a puncture tire and everything will be okay but as the night progressed you know I'm not sleeping I'm waiting for a word I'm waiting for a call meanwhile my heart's racing going this is very odd So then uh, the next morning, um, the police arrive again and said, well, we've got a search party out for him now. Plus there were friends on the coast, Muso mates that were searching for him as well. There were mates that night that have driven around as well, looking at bars and clubs, looking for Glenn and ringing him. And I remember the policeman, uh, Constable Glenn Oh, the funny part was that his name was the same as Glenn's and um, and so was his middle name and, it, and uh, you know, that took my breath away and he walked into the studio where I was waiting with the police because the girls were down in the house and another lovely constable was um, entertaining the girls, keeping them busy, not to be frightened by all this action and police cars at the front of the house pulling up and... Uh, the, the police had said they've used his mobile number and found a call from uh, Booty National Park and they said could he have 
gone over there? And I said, yes, of course, he could have gone there. We used to go there quite a bit. The police officer walked in and he said, we've located a body to the description that you've given for Glenn and we can't get there by uh, foot at the moment. We're going to need help. I, you know, collapsed in the arms of a friend and that was the beginning of, uh, yeah, the end. The beginning of the end, but uh, I wouldn't wish that moment on anybody. Right now my mind is looking at me and that moment as a movie, like it was on, you know, the big screen because your life has just been blown up. Um, and then I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Is, is this... How could this be possible? How could Glenn have just done... How could he do that? What about the girls? What about our life? What about the... Pro- Everything is, is just... It's, it's running through your head and why and what? And then was it... Was it, was it him? Did, was someone else there? You just have all these questions and, um, yeah, and those moments replayed oh, on repeat for many, many weeks there following... It's, it's like a, a thousand-piece puzzle, probably more than that, actually, that you just find a couple of corners or, or a bit that's a random piece that is part of a, a, some unusual object that you can't quite work out what it is and you think, is that, was that, what, oh, what was that bit there? And, it, it, and I've been told, stop asking questions because the only one that knows the answers is Glenn and you can't argue with a dead man. It's um, obviously some great horrible pain just swallowed him up and he had to stop that pain. You can't put blame on yourself because, and even the kids say that, Mummy, it wasn't your fault. And they understand that Daddy's brain was like a computer and a virus took Daddy's brain. Tia, who was eight, she explained that to me and I said, who told you that, darling? And she said, well, I, I know that's how it is. I'm not dumb, Mum. You know, that's, you can't move forward any way, shape or form if you look back and think, what, how should I have done that differently? Oh, there was that moment there where he seemed a bit tense. Was that that or was it something else? You could totally do somersaults over all of that if, buts and what ifs. And I did get cranky. I'm still cranky that he couldn't share that with me. Like I was his, I was the one that he chose and he was the one I chose and you're supposed to be able to share the pain. Come hell or high water, I was going to be there for him, love him through whatever. I'm, well, I'm a Taurean, I'm stubborn as all get out, but I'm reliable and I wasn't going anywhere. So whatever it was that he felt he couldn't share was just too much of a burden for him and he wanted to take that with him. And were there any recollections in the period after he died where somebody shared a story that you hadn't known? Oh, the only story that really made me laugh was hearing the truth about a couple of prices that he paid for guitars, that old story about, you know, don't tell your wife what they're really worth. <laughs> and, and it did come out and it really did uh, bring some light in a, in a pretty tragic moment. Can you give me a ballpark figure? A lot? Oh, yeah, about 20 grand. Um, oh, wow. So... Uh, <laughs> That's real. That's real yeah, money. See, see how you could laugh at that. Um, <laughs> um, I think those moments also save you because 
I was left with this tsunami to deal with and and finding out the truth about some of those things is part of that. So if you didn't laugh in those moments, I don't know what I would have done. Within a few months, Felicity returns to the music studio in the backyard. It had always been a shared workspace for the two of them, but the roles had been clearly defined. Glenn was the studio operator, and Felicity, with a gorgeous voice, she'd work away from inside the recording booth. But now, with a radio show still to produce, Felicity finds herself on the other side of the glass, standing solo in front of the mixing desk for the first time. When I walked in there, I'd say a few... A uh, few heated words um, in anger at um, at Glenn, and I'd say, oh, "You watch me. I'm going to do this." And I was determined to work and and get it happening and have control. And and I had a very uh, famous artist from America. He was in Forbes magazine as uh, one of the most successful artists of the modern era. And here I was. I dialed through the call and. Uh, and then the call dropped out. I'm in front of the microphone. Then I started losing it. I was um, being a little potty mouth. Anyway, here I was, rabbiting on and most frustrated. I went back to the desk and I uh, said, oh, I'm sorry, it dropped out. And he said, yeah, I heard that. I heard you cussing and all. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologise. I said, I'm terribly sorry. So <laughs> I learnt fast. I had to make decisions too about well when was I going to get back to to gigs. There were festival bookings and there were responsibilities. I did have the radio show weekly four hours that I had committed to and they were wonderful. But as well in myself, I needed to know. I needed to be a, a providing parent. I needed to still think I was the same girl I was before this all happened. So I guess that I was still me. And um, and I was still me. Counting pieces in your purse Can't decide which is worse Robbing Peter to pay Paul The pendulum swinging on the wall Running for your life won't beat the clock Tick-tock, tick-tock Wherever you go How did you feel about touring that album in the months after Glenn had died and how did you make the decision to go to out there it. and tour it? Yeah. Mm, well, again, it comes back to still being myself. I worked hard, equally as hard on that album as Glenn did, uh, and it, it became quite interesting, even in the moments of performing the songs, time and time again, the lyrics, how they had this whole different spin on them. And it was almost like they were written after I'd lost Glenn. Run for your life. Run for your life. Run for your life. Run for your life. 
even the title track, Frozen Rabbit, there's lines in there about um, running for your life and, and, um, and making up time. Made up time is lost for good. You take it all back. You take it all back if you could, just to know you made it through when your last breath is leaving you. It wasn't just the lyrics that sounded different now. Being on stage, performing live, that felt a bit different to Felicity too. I mean, friends were commenting at gigs uh, after Glenn that, wow, Fliss, you're out there just really owning it and 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 doing it. And I, I think part of that is because I, I'm not fearful of disappointing Glenn um, anymore because that was something that did occur from time to time that I wouldn't step up to the mark or, oh, you know, I talk too much of that gig or I, I don't know, um, whatever those performer doubts that you have where I felt well, I wasn't accountable to Glenn anymore. He's not here so I could just do whatever I wanted. So apparently I look like a free bird out there so I'm, I'm flying with that one. The first small gig I did, the first appearance back, was at the Milton Theatre, beautiful spot. It was this army out there in support, so it was um, pretty special with the Faceless Men playing for me, and that was Glenn's band. And with that support of friends that were playing with me, like there was this other energy and um, I felt like a physical hand was on my back, many hands actually, just holding me up, just just helping me through and um, it's hard to explain it but that was the physical feeling of what I was going through. And then this other uh, hands from the front, from the, the audience were also propping me up. There was this come on, you know, we've got you, we're right here with you and I could feel we love you Felicity, I just felt it everywhere. That night at the Milton Theatre, as Felicity returned to the stage, one of her supporters in the crowd was Josh Cunningham, a fellow musician and a member of the band, The Waifs. Felicity and Glenn had run into Josh over the years as they orbited the same music world. And after the show that night, as they chat, Felicity tells Josh that if he's ever driving through the central coast, he should drop in for a cup of tea. Maybe they could write a song. Josh did go past for that cup of tea, Songs were written, and soon a musical collaboration began, one that eventually turned into a personal relationship too. Now, Josh and Felicity are building a life together. It's a life that puts Felicity's daughters, Tia and Ellie, at the centre, plus Wilson, Josh's Jack Russell Terrier. In 2020, out of that musical and that life collaboration, Felicity and Josh made an album. It's called The Song Club. It's a collection of duets, and it's out now. And so we leave you today with a track. This is a year to remember. Trouble comes with its own sense of timing. I guess the plan is never set in stone. But in the rubble of our plans, a silver. Blah,
time It takes time to witness love In all its splendor These moments that can never be forgotten As you make this one a to remember If this episode has raised anything for you at all, please know that there are free and available supports out there. The Suicide Callback Service provides 24-7 crisis support for all Australians affected by suicide. You can reach them on 1300 659 467. Or you can call Lifeline anytime on 13 11 14. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. I love all the messages and the notes that you send in to us. If you've got a story that you'd like to share or you want to get in touch, you can send us an email or a voice memo to dayslikethese at abc.net.au. And if you haven't already, follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. If you've got a minute, you can leave us a rating and review there as well. We love hearing what you think. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Our lead reporter is Padabud. This episode was engineered by Kerry Dell and the supervising producer was Michelle Ransom-Hughes. Thanks, Michelle. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Sophie Townsend. Our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. See you next time. Next time on Days Like These, two men go head-to-head over a set of photographs taken in the Tasmanian wilderness. The images could rewrite the history of a legendary animal. If only they could agree on what they're looking at. Well, clearly it's not a paddy melon, but hey, you know what? You're the expert, mate. Knock yourself out. That's fine. He was very cordial and very polite. Everything was fine, but I disagree with his findings. That's coming up next week on Days Like These. And in the meantime, why not listen to another great ABC podcast like this one? Hi there, Yumi Steins here, host of Ladies We Need to Talk. So Ladies We Need to Talk is a show all about busting taboos around sex, health and relationships. Basically, we want to talk about all the stuff that's kind of hard to bring up in real life. I would get goosebumps. I would get chills. I, I found it really hard to resist. It's super excruciating, like I have, like someone stabbing a knife up my bowel. From how to deal with our last shot at pregnancy to why women's hair is such a big deal, there are no topics we won't dive into headfirst. I watch all the sexy movies on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll, I'll be 90 this year. So join me on Ladies We Need to Talk. Find it in the ABC Listen app or from wherever you get your podcasts.